can know that the Bible is His Word, and we can know what a biblical account actually is. Then last night, we looked at it from the perspective of uh, moving forward just from the biblical account of creation and taking more of an overview of, that ev uh, of those evidences. Tonight we move forward looking at the topic of, again, why does it matter? When we talk about the days of creation, when we talk about the amount of time the earth has existed, when we talk about whether or not the days were eons of time or whether or not they were literal 24-hour days, when we talk about the debate between creation and evolution, when we investigate these ideas, inevitably some are going to say, what's the point? Why does it matter? Why don't you just talk about important things like the Bible and, and Jesus and, and salvation and, and the, the church? Okay. When we start looking at the origins of man, the age of the earth, can we trust God's Word in what God's Word says that God's Word did? Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were established. It was by the word of the Lord that this earth came into existence. Of course, that's a reference to Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be a firmament. And God said, and God said, and God said. Creation came into existence because God said it. God's word says that God's word said it. If we believe that God, what God's Word says, then we have to believe what God's Word says God's Word did. But can we understand what it says? This debate about whether or not it matters has been raging for a while. And it's actually been hitting some of those, some of those institutions that, that our brethren have put together over the course of the decades. For instance, there's a, a school going out west in Texas where in the early 80s, two professors were teaching outright evolution. One biology professor actually handed out a piece of paper that had a photocopy of Genesis 1 on it and scribbled in the margin was him, comma, myth. Genesis 1, a hymn or a song, a myth, claiming that it was just Hebrew poetry, not to be understood literally. The fact is that evolution is being taught everywhere, even on some Christian campuses. But are we ready to combat against it or do we even care? The lack of an outcry, the absence of resistance, indicates that many saints and their children have been so negatively influenced by the, the, the push of the evolutionary mindset that they've either adopted it or they've just become desensitized to its prominence. I know how effective the evolutionary push has been because growing up in a home where uh, faith wasn't strong initially, parents are great folks, members of the Lord's Church, faithful now, but back then there was a lot of learning to do. And so I reached adulthood and was sitting in a, a Bible class one day and a man stood up and started mentioning dinosaurs. My first thought was, what's that got to do with the Bible? 
And then he started talking about evidences pointing out that dinosaurs would have lived concurrent with man. I thought, there's something wrong with this fellow. And then he started talking about the, uh, the absence of evidence for evolution. Something that had been instilled in me throughout 12 years of primary school, throughout the, the years of college that I'd taken and studying engineering. I had to do some study. I had to do some research. I had to realize that this person standing up here in front of me wasn't just making up garbage. The actual garbage was what had been spoon-fed throughout the previous, really, 16 years of secular education. It could be the case that there's, there are folks here tonight that hear the idea of any refutation of evolution or any adoption of a literal view of Genesis, and that person thinks, oh boy, this fellow's silly. Then there are others that just think, oh, it doesn't matter, don't worry about it. It matters. Tonight I want to talk about four reasons how we can know that it matters. We can be certain that it matters. There we go. Why worry about time in the age of the earth? Why not just talk about the important things? That's the idea they often put forward. Evolutionist Mike LePage has said that one of the sorts of findings and experiments that could have falsified evolution is the idea of a young earth. We have a book that has stood the test of time and its integrity. Oh, the world tries to look down its snooty nose at it, but when you look at the evidence for the Bible's validity, perfect consistency, historical accuracy, scientific foreknowledge, fulfilled prophecy, when you look at the evidence for the Bible's validity, we can trust it. We have a book that is the firmest piece of recorded and preserved evidence that you're going to find of anything. We can trust it. The fact that the Bible teaches a young earth ought to be something that, that causes us to stand in defense of the idea. Does it matter? Well, let's ask, let's ask it this way. Does it matter if we forfeit faith's foundations? What do we mean by that? Romans 10, 17, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. My faith, my relationship with God, my trust in Him, and by the way, the, the system of faith that we as Christians follow comes by hearing God's Word. God's Word is the standard. God's Word is the guide. If we take a look at what God's Word has to say, According to Genesis, the earth was created in six 24-hour days. Now, we've hit on this idea. We just want to make sure that we keep it in mind and ever in front of us. The evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning were the third day. Six days of creation, Genesis 1, all depicted as 24-hour days with an evening and a morning. All uh, given a numeral as a modifier. We're not talking about day eons of time. We're not talking about day long period of time. We're talking about day, 24-hour day. Genesis depicts the days of creation as six 24-hour days. Now, 
Add to that the fact that according to Scripture, the earth was created about 6,000 years ago. Now, here's why we say about 6,000 years ago. We'll do a little bit of math. We'll follow the, the sands of time, if you will. Let's start with where we are today. From Jesus to today, well, what year is this? 2022. I mean, we're in June. You ought to be getting it right by now. I know up through about February or March and April, you're still writing the previous year, right? It's been easier here lately, though. I was so ready to get 2020 and 2021 behind me. 2022 was easy to adopt. 2022. 2022 years from what? The arrival of the Lord. It's Anna's Dominoes. I know that's not what it literally is. It's Anna Dominus, the year of the Lord. 2022. Yes, if we really get into some technicality with the Gregorian calendar and how it's off four to six years, okay, this would technically be about 2028, but we're not going to digress that far. Estimate 2022 years from us to Christ. How long was it from Abraham to Christ? We can actually calculate that with a little bit of secular history, connecting to biblical history, and then letting the Bible's numbers help us. For instance, 1 Kings 6.1 points out that uh, Solomon in the fourth year of his reign began to build the temple. The, the historically recognized and accepted date for the beginning of Solomon's reign is 971 B.C. Now that is a key date in calculating biblical history. From 971 B.C., if you move forward four years, you're in 967 B.C. when the temple began to be built. So we can know that from the beginning of the temple to the arrival of Christ, 967 years. Because B.C. means before Christ. That same verse, 1 Kings 6, 1 points out that it was 480 years from the time Israel left Egypt to the time the temple was, uh, construction began. 480 years from the time the, of the Exodus. That means that the Exodus would have occurred about the year 1447 B.C. Yes, we can actually calculate it to roughly the year. Now, from that, we add the evidence of Galatians 3.17. Paul said that it was 430 years from the promise to the giving of the law. What promise, Paul? God's promise to Abraham, which is what's being discussed in Galatians 3. 430 years from the promise to the giving of the law. By the way, the law was given the same year, actually two months, after they came out of Egypt. So, if we backdate from 1447 B.C. by 430 years, the promise came to Abraham in 1877 B.C. So about 1877 years from Abraham to Christ. Then we try to figure out how many years passed from Adam to Abraham. And biblically speaking, this is an easy one to calculate. It's just tedious because you have to add up a whole lot of dates. If we start with Genesis 5... Genesis 5, picking up at 
verse 2, the description is given of Abraham's age upon the arrival of his son Seth. He was 130 years old when Seth was born. And as we move through Genesis 5, those first 10 generations are given. Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And as we work our way through those generations, Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. Seth was 105 years old when Enos was born. Enos was 90 years old when Cainan was born. Cainan was 70 years old when Mahaliel was born. Mahaliel was 65 years old when Jared came along. Jared was 162 years old when Methuselah arrived, uh, when Enoch arrived. Enoch was 65 when he begat Methuselah, Methuselah 187 when he begat Lamech, and Lamech was 182 when he begat Noah. Now if we do all of that math, that's 1,056 years from the creation of Adam to the birth of Noah. Now according to Genesis 7-6, the flood came in the 600th year of Noah's life. So we're going to take that number, 1,056, the number of years from Adam to Noah's birth, and then we're going to add to that 600, because 600 was the age of Noah when the flood came. And then we're going to add two more years, because we're told in Genesis 11:10 that Shem's son was born two years after the flood. And we're going to be develop, uh, adding more dates on top of that one. So, from Adam to uh, Noah, 1,056 years. From the birth of Noah to the flood, another 600 years, so we're at 1656. And then two years af uh, after the flood, Noah's grandson was born. So we're at 1658. From there, if we look at Genesis 11:11 11, 11 through Genesis 12:4, we, we can calculate some more dates. Come back here. There we go. For the sake of time, the dates given in terms of the age of each father when he begat his son in uh, Genesis 11, 11 and following, age 35, age 30, age 34, age 30, age 32, age 30, age 29, age 70, age 75. That age 70 was the age of Terah when he begat his sons, Abraham being one of them. That age 75 refers to Abraham's age in Genesis 12:4 when God gave the promise. Remember, we already noted Galatians 3:17 from the promise to the law was 430 years. Well, we can calculate from the arrival of Adam all the way to the promise given to Abraham. And when we tally all of those numbers, 2023 years. We add all of that together. 2,022 years from Jesus till today, 1,877 years from Abraham to Jesus, and 2,023 years from Adam to Abraham. The, the biblical, the rough biblical uh, age of the earth would be, here we, there we go, right at 6,000 years, 5,922 years. Now again, that's based on the dates given in Scripture, primarily Genesis 5, Genesis 11, and then the information gleaned from 1 Kings 6, 1, Galatians 3, 17. We can look at Scripture and arrive at a conclusion of the age of the earth. Now there are those that say, well, there were, there were long spans of time between some of those generations. Really? 
Because Genesis 5 gives you the exact age of the father when the son was born. And Jude would look back at Genesis 5 and view it literally. Jude verse 14, Jude spoke of Enoch, whom he called the seventh from Adam. Now remember it was Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch. Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam. So those are literal generations, literal ages of literal fathers having literal sons. When we let the Bible speak for itself, we can have an estimate of the age of the earth. So, not only does Genesis give us an estimate for the age of uh, six literal 24-hour days, Scripture as a whole shows that the earth was created about 6,000 years ago. We add to that, according to the New Testament, the Genesis depiction of creation is literal, accurate, reliable. Here's what we mean by that. We take a look at the New Testament and see what, what the life of Christ has to say. Jesus' very lineage includes Adam, Seth, Enos, Cain, and Mahaliel, Jared. Luke 3 beginning in verse 36. The lineage of Christ goes back to Adam. And if we cannot trust the historicity of Adam, then we cannot trust the historicity of Jesus' genealogy. Jesus would point the Pharisees back to the initial home. Matthew 19, they said, Can a man put away his wife for any reason? Jesus said, Have you not read in the law how that he that made them in the beginning made them both male and female? Mark's account records Jesus saying, He that made them in the beginning of the creation made them male and female. And said, For this cause shall man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, they shall be one flesh. Jesus in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10 quoted Genesis 2 literally, taking the Genesis account literally from Genesis 1 and then quoting Genesis 2.24. Christ took Genesis literally. If Genesis is just a bunch of figures and myths, and Jesus depicted it literally, then how much can we trust anything else He had to say? Our faith hinges on consistency in Scripture. We can look at what Jesus had to say about Abel, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, Matthew 23, 35, speaking of literal murders that took place. And Jesus viewed Abel's blood as literally spilled. Or what He said about Satan who was a liar from the beginning and a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. We can look at what Jesus had to say about Noah, Matthew 24, 37 through 39, and that flood generation. Jesus described those events in the first chapters of Genesis as literal. So many people have tried to purport that Genesis 1 through 11 are all figurative. That's not the case. Or we, we can think about what Paul had to say. Paul, in emphasizing the resurrection, looked all the way back to the creation, speaking of the first Adam, the second Adam, the first man, and then Jesus as uh, the the beginning of new creation, so to speak, in terms of the resurrection. Or we take a look at what Paul had to say about that first sin, 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 13. Adam was first formed, and then Eve. And the woman, uh, Adam was not conceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Paul would take the Genesis account 
and even inform us of a little bit of extra information. Paul lets us know that Adam wasn't duped. Eve was. But he speaks of them in literal terms. Jesus took the Genesis account as literal. So did Paul. So did Peter. Peter spoke of the creation of the world, 2 Peter 3, 5, how that uh, the heavens and earth that then were, were spoken into existence. Matter of fact, Peter also spoke of the flood on multiple occasions, 1 Peter 3, 20, when he spoke of Noah and his family being saved by water, the flood. When he spoke of the flood in 2 Peter 2, 5, Noah, that preacher of righteousness. And then uh, 2 Peter 3, 6, when he spoke of the, the world being flooded with the water. Jesus, Peter, and Paul all took Genesis literally. We've already mentioned Jude. And that's just a sampling of references to the first 11 chapters of Genesis that you can find in the New Testament. When people tell you, well, you know, those first few chapters of Genesis aren't literal. I would recommend open up a Bible and offer that person to have a little talk with Jesus. You know, the kind that's beneficial. The kind where you let Jesus do the talking and you listen to the way He describes some things. So, oh, and then there's the book of Hebrews. <laughs> just Hebrews 11. We, we could work our way through all of the Old Testament references in Hebrews, but just Hebrews 11. The blood of Abel, Hebrews 11.3. Uh, or actually the creation, Hebrews 11.3. Hebrews 11.4, Abel, whose blood still speaks from the ground. Hebrews 11.5, reference to Enoch. Hebrews 11.7, moving forward, speaking of Noah. The Hebrews writer took all of those individuals and characters from Genesis to be literal. Why does it matter? Why does it matter if Genesis 1 through 11 are literal? Why does it matter if, if those are giving the accurate depiction or not? Because if they're not, we can't trust the Bible. According to Genesis, the earth was made in six literal 24-hour days. And if it wasn't, we've got a problem. According to Genesis, or according to Scripture overall, the earth is about 6,000 years old. And if not, we're going to have a problem in terms of the accuracy of Scripture. And according to the New Testament, Genesis' depiction of creation is accurate and reliable. So, we're looking at the foundations of faith. If I cannot trust Genesis, I cannot trust the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Why does it matter? Because my relationship with God hinges on it. My relationship with, not, with God is not based on, well, I don't need to believe that, but I'll accept these ideas, these promises He's made. Mm -mm. Man's biggest problem is sin. Man's problem with sin began in the garden. And if I expect to understand the nature of sin and the problem that, that it causes, it's going to require an understanding of the literal events of the garden. If I do not understand Genesis 1 through 11 for what they're actually describing, I don't even understand who my God is. I don't understand what man's biggest problem is, and I'm not going to understand what salvation is. So does it matter if we forfeit faith's foundation? Next question. Does it matter if we confuse God's communication? 
Ephesians 3, 4, Paul said something that is astounding. He said, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mysteries of Christ. Hmm. He had wrote to them before in a few words about the mystery of Christ. And Paul said, when you read what I wrote, you can understand what I understood. Now remember, Paul is the same apostle that penned 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Where did Paul get what he wrote to the Ephesians? Inspiration of God. What did Paul say about when a person reads those inspired words? When you read what I wrote, you can understand what I understood. And the truth of Ephesians 3, 4 can be applied to all of Scripture. When I read what God had written, I can understand what God desired to communicate. By the way, who's a better communicator, God or Satan? God. In the Garden of Eden, what did the serpent use to lure Eve to look at that fruit differently? How did he convey that lie? Words. All he had to do was talk. And that was it. We live in a world where there are people that will tell you, bold-faced, you know, we really can't understand the Bible. We need God to give us an inspired understanding. <laughs> really? You can understand when I'm making fun of you. Can you understand when God is giving you instruction? If we can communicate with each other and convey information in an accurate way, and I realize there are some of us that can't, but typically speaking, if we as people can communicate with each other and share ideas and meanings, don't we think God can? He was the first one to speak. Don't we think God can? He's the one that made the mouth. Do you remember what he told Moses in Exodus 4? Moses was saying, Lord, I don't know how to talk pretty. He said, I'm not eloquent, but he meant talk pretty. Lord, I, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant. God said, Moses, who made your mouth? God knows how to communicate. He made the mouth. There are people that tell us we really can't understand the Bible alike. We really can't understand the Bible. But the Bible says we can. Now that's going to be important because when, when we have people that want to discuss the, the dates and times and lengths of uh, uh, time frames in Genesis 1, if Genesis 1 is not describing six literal 24-hour days, we don't know whether to scratch our watches or wind our noses. We can't tell right from left down from up. There are those that will say, well, but God could have done it over whatever span of time He chose. Amen. God could have done it in whatever way He opted to do it. You got that right. God could have done it in whatever order He chose. You know what? He sure could. But it's not a question of God's ability. It's a question of God's integrity. Titus 1, 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6. 
There is no dishonesty with God. And if God portrayed the creation in a way that's contrary to the way that it actually took place, then we have an integrity issue. Yes, God could have done it in any way, in any order, in any time frame. He could have made the earth in six literal days, six literal hours, six literal seconds. He could have made it in one millisecond. Poof! He could have made the earth with everything coming into existence in the state of technology that we have in the 20th century. Had He opted to do so, He did not. He opted to do it one day at a time for six days. And that's the way He described it. So, it's not about God's ability, but His integrity. And it's not about God's ability, but His clarity. Remember, when we read what He wrote, we can understand what He understood. When we read what God had to say, we can understand the message He intended to convey. If God did create the earth in six literal days, what other words could He have used to make it more clear than the words that He utilized? What else could God have said to make us arrive at the conclusion, He made it in six days? It's sort of like the discussion that we have concerning the Lord's church. Jesus is head of all things to the church, which is His body, Ephesians 1, and 23. There is one body, one spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Just as there's one God the Father, one God the Spirit, one God the Son, one hope of heaven, one faith that gets you there, one baptism that uh, is valid in Christ's plan, there is one body into which you are added when you're baptized. That's the Lord's church. One, 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 one. How much clearer could he have made it? Maybe he could have said, Upon this rock I will build my church, singular. Oh, wait, he did that, didn't he? How much clearer does God need to make it? How much clearer did he need to make it that he made the earth in six days? How much clearer did he need to make it concerning the lifespans and time frames of those early patriarchs? Yes, Genesis 1 contains a few figurative terms. Think about the way it's described in verse 2. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The face of the deep. Why didn't it just say darkness was on the water? Darkness was upon the face of the deep. Do we ever use slightly flowery, eloquent, figurative terms in order to emphasize ideas? Parents, have you ever used eloquent, beautiful speech to convey ideas to your children? For instance, instead of, I'm going to administer discipline, I'm going to spank you into next week. Have you ever opted to use figurative words to convey an idea because you know that it will carry the point? Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God hovered, brooded, moved above the waters. We've got this image of, of darkness. So close that it touches the face of the deep. Now oh, it could have been said darkness was on the deep, but there's a little bit of a figure used. By the way, that doesn't make it poetry. Just like parents aren't being poetic whenever they offer to send their children into the future with the swing of an arm. No. 
it's being figurative, but not all figurative language is poetry. And just because there are some figures used in Genesis 1 doesn't mean that it's all to be mythicized or symbolized. We understand figurative language in everyday speech all the time. If I walk into my house and I've been outside mowing the yard and I tell my wife, oh, it is hot out there, I'm dying. Should she call an ambulance? Now, if I crawl into the house, literally dripping on the floor, my tongue hanging out of my mouth saying, sweetheart, I'm dying, I've overheated. And she says, oh, he'll be okay. We may have a problem, right? We can understand the difference between figurative and literal language. Why don't we apply some common sense when we read God's Word? Yes, there are times when it takes some study. But we can understand the figures of God's Word. God is perfectly clear in what He has to say, whether He's using allegory or metonymy, whether He's using uh, metaphor or hyperbole, whether He's using sarcasm or irony. And boy, Paul does a great job of that in 2 Corinthians. I giggle every time I read that book. Yes, God uses figurative language, but not all instances of figurative language make it uh, non-literal poetry that, that can't be understood. If we can understand the simple figures in everyday life, we can understand Scripture. To cling to evolution, whether theistic evolution, claiming that there are eons of time in Genesis 1 because because God took His time with creation, or to cling to the, the literal uh, secular atheistic evolution. Either way, to cling to that evolutionary idea devalues the Bible, and for those that claim to be religious, they've diluted their religion. I want to read you a quote. An effective way to cast doubt on the Bible is to claim science has shown that a straightforward reading of the Bible cannot be trusted. And that the Bible must be continually reinterpreted by specialists to ensure that it matches contemporary human wisdom. If society can be convinced to view the Bible in that manner, then the Bible loses all significance because it has to change with each passing day. It loses all significance. Biblical teaching will be accepted when it agrees with personal opinion and rejected when it does not. By the way, does that sound like it might describe, I don't know, right now? And the way people approach Scripture? Because it's been so stripped of its validity and its punch that people just take it as, uh, uh, as though it's a cafeteria. I'll, I'll pick and choose what I want to get. I want to read you another quote. This man said, I had gradually come by this time to see that the Old Testament from its manifestly false history of the world and its attributing to God the feelings of a revengeful tyrant was no more to be trusted than the sacred books of the Hindus or the beliefs of any barbarian. Those words come from the autobiography of Charles Darwin. Because when I devalue, deface, deride, and discredit the legitimacy of Scripture, I'm going off the deep end. So, does it matter if we forfeit our faith? Does it matter if we confuse God's communication? Let's move forward. Another idea to investigate 
does it matter if we shun Jesus' salvation? John said many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written here, John 20, verse 30. But these are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. So, John penned his gospel account in order to supply evidence, particularly in terms of the wonders Jesus performed. There is biblical evidence for Christ. But the mindset, the evolutionary, secular, humanistic world is getting progressively better even though that everything has to conform to entropy. It's still getting better somehow. This mindset is the same group of people that are going to convey some of the ideas we're about to read. See, what's actually happening when we undermine Genesis, when we undermine understanding of Scripture, we undermine the very Christ Himself. We undermine what the Bible is all about. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Man's biggest problem is sin. God's solution is Jesus. That's the thrust of the Bible in a verse. And when we undermine Genesis, then we undermine the Jesus who endorsed Genesis. I want you to hear a few statements, several actually, from secularists concerning whether Jesus' life was historical or a hoax. For instance, Gerald Massey in his book uh, The Gnostic and Historic Christianity said, whether considered as the, the God made human or as man made divine, this character, Jesus, never existed as a person. Here's a denial of the very existence of Jesus. You're going to see several of these. Albert Schweitzer, in his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, wrote, The Jesus of Nazareth, who came forward publicly as the Messiah, who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth, and died to give his work a, its final consecration, never had any existence. This is a figure designed by rationalism, endowed with life by liberalism, and clothed by modern theology in a historical garb. He knows some big words. Thing is, he gave no proof for what he said. Moving forward, Dan Barker, in his book, Losing Faith in Faith, wrote that the gospel stories are no more historic than the Genesis creation accounts are scientific. Did you catch that? When I can convince people that the Genesis accounts are not scientifically accurate, I have ripped the foundation out from under the gospel accounts and everything said about the Christ. Dan went forward to say, it is rational to conclude that the New Testament Jesus is a myth. Brian Fleming, a former fundamental Christian, the director of the movie The God Who Wasn't There and the movie The Beast, that came out on June 6th of 2006, 666, said the authors of the Gospels writing 40 to 90 years after the supposed life of Christ never intended for their work to be read as biographies. There are no credible non-Christian references to Christ during the period in which He is said to have lived. Please keep that quote in mind because it's easy to stand up and say, I'm the best basketball player in the world. By the way, you hear me say that. There's something wrong with my noggin. You need to take me to a doctor. 
But it's easy to stand up and make a claim. It's one other thing to prove it. So remember Mr. Fleming's claim that there are no credible non-Christian references to Christ during the period when he lived. Mr. Fleming also said centuries ago a legend was invented. Forgery, fraud, coercion, wealth, greed, torture, murder, war gave it the power to dominate the world. That's how he portrays Christianity and the Christ. Or there's Dan Brown. You've probably heard of his book, The Da Vinci Code, or his uh, subsequent works, Angels and Demons. Dan Brown had his character, Sir Lee Teabing, say in The Da Vinci Code that the pre-Christian god Mithras, called the Son of God and the light of the world, was born on December 25th, died and was buried in a rock tomb, and then resurrected in three days. By the way, December 25th is also the birthday of Osiris, Adonis, and Dionysius, gods of various uh, cultures. The newborn Krishna was presented with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Even Christianity's weekly holy day was stolen from the pagans. It's interesting you put so much focus on this Christmas idea of December 25th. Scripture doesn't do that. Only Christians who've decided they want to adopt paganism have done that, but we move forward. Most of the first sentence, that's not to say that it's paganism to give someone a gift on December 25th. We're talking about trying to say Jesus' birthday is that day. Moving forward, most of the first century literature that survives was written by members of the very small elite class of the Roman Empire. To them, Jesus, if they heard of him at all, was merely a troublesome rabble-rouser and a magician in a small backward part of the world. That's E.P. Sanders in his book, The Historical Figure of Jesus. But notice that he acknowledges the possibility for the historicity of Christ. And he's basing it off of the literature of those that lived during his time. Much different than Mr. Brian Fleming who just spitballed whatever he wanted to say. Moving forward, now we start looking at some historians from that era. Cornelius Tacitus, who lived A.D. 57 through A.D. 117, said Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. You'll notice that Cornelius Tacitus doesn't say good things about Christians. He calls them depraved. But notice what else he does have to say, although he is no friend to Christians. Their originator, Christ, had been executed in Tiberius' reign by the governor of Judea. By the way, that corresponds with Luke 3, uh, designating when Jesus' ministry began and the timing of Jesus' death. Their originator, Christ, had been executed in Tiberius' reign by the governor of Judea. Pontius Pilate. But in spite of this temporary setback, the deadly superstition had broken out afresh, not only in Judea where the mischief had started, but even in Rome. Again, Tacitus was no friend to Christians, but he didn't argue about the historicity of Jesus. Or we look at the words of Pliny the Younger. In his letter to Rome, seeking advice of how to handle this this bane that they called Christians, he says, I was never present at any trial of Christians, therefore I do not know the customary penalties or investigations and what limits are observed. This is the course that I've adopted in the case of those brought before me as Christians. 
I ask them if they are Christians. If they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time, threatening capital punishment if they persist, and sentence them to death. Pliny would go on to say, they, Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. Now this is the one that's talking about his trying of Christians and persecuting of Christians. And then he describes their behavior and how they worship Christ as God, bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit fraud theft, adultery, never to falsify their word, not to deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. In other words, he describes them as morally upstanding citizens, but he tries them because they won't bow the knee to the Roman emperor cult. Pliny used the word Christian or Christians seven times. He used Christ three times in reference to the founder of the sect. Now this is from A.D. 111, the time of the earliest Christians. Again, Brian Fleming's claims are falling apart. Gaius Suetonius Tranquilius, we know him as Suetonius, from A.D. 70 to A.D. 130, said that because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances of the... Hello, I guess we need to turn this way. Because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Christ... Claudius expelled them from the city. Punishments are also inflicted on Christians, a sect professing a new and mischievous religious belief. Time and again, historians depict what has Christians endured. There's Lucian from A.D. 175. The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites. He's referring to Christ as an actual individual Celsus, in his true discourse, which was an attack upon Christians, claimed that Jesus was born of fornication between Mary and a Roman soldier named Panthera, and that he began to call himself God as he matured. But despite all of his slanderous words, Celsus never argued or even suggested that Jesus didn't exist. He didn't like him, but he didn't oppose his existence. But we live in a world where people are trying to tell us Jesus didn't exist. Do you want to know why? Because they've not looked at the evidence. They've not looked at the evidence for the historicity of Jesus just as they've not looked at the evidence for the validity or invalidity of evolutionary theory of e or eons of time. We are talking about a world that surrounds us where bias, preconceived ideas, and illogical assumptions define the day. Josephus, a Jew, historian, and a slick cat in terms of salvaging his life in numerous situations, also penned a history of the Jews and spoke of the first century. If there arose about this time Jesus, a wise man, if indeed we should call him a man, for he was a doer of marvelous deeds, a teacher of men who received the truth with pleasure. He led away many Jews and also Greeks. He was the Christ. That's what he was called. Josephus declared the historicity of Jesus, although he didn't claim to follow him. Moving forward, because we are running low on our time, I do want to read you this. Edwin M. Yamauchi said, Even if we did not have the New Testament or Christian writings, we would be able to conclude from such non-Christian writings as Josephus, the Talmud, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, 
that one, Jesus was a Jewish teacher. Two, many people believed that He performed healings and exorcisms. Three, He was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Four, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Five, despite this shameful death, His followers, who believed that He was still alive, spread beyond Palestine so that there were multitudes of them in Rome by 64 A.D. Six, all kinds of people from the cities to the countryside, men, women, slave and free, worshipped Him as God by the beginning of the second century. You don't even need the Bible to have sufficient evidence for the historicity of Jesus. So anyone that would deny the historicity of Christ is doing so based on assumptions. But all of the sort of arguments we've been discussing launch from unwarranted assumptions anyway. Now, J.W. Monser said, If we maintain that the life of our Lord is not a historical event, we are landed in hopeless difficulties and inconsistency. We shall have to give up all ancient history and to deny that there was ever such an event as the assassination of Julius Caesar. If you deny that there was a Christ, you deny that Caesar ever said, A tu brute? So, does it matter if we shun Jesus' salvation? Because He came into this world to die for us, but those that would deride, uh, put forward the theory of evolution would also try to deny the, the validity, the reality of Christ. Another question for us to ask. Oh, actually, Aldous Huxley, one of the, the leading atheists of his day, from a family of secular humanists and leading atheists, said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, assumed it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. In other words, I didn't want to believe it, so I didn't believe it. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics, philosophy. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. In other words, the one that says this world has no purpose, no meaning, we're just uh, molecules to man, evolution, balls of matter that have developed into thinking people. There's nowhere we're going, there's nothing we are doing, has arrived at that conclusion because he wants to do what he wants to do. Here's where Mr. Huxley's quote continues. He would say, we objected morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. That is absolute honesty. And by and large, that is the motive for the rejection of the validity of Scripture. People wanting to do what they want to do. And it was Freud who said that man is driven by two urges, the need to feel important and the sex urge. When we look at those that are just given to their inclinations and assumptions, don't doubt that their lusts have played into their doctrine. So, does it matter if we, if we forfeit faith's foundations? I think it does. Does it matter if we confuse God's communications? I think it does. We claim we can't understand God. We're lost. Does it matter if we shun Christ's salvation? It does. One more question. Does it matter if we give up tomorrow's generation? Ephesians 6, 4. 
Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It's not about you. They don't care about you. But if they can get your children. A study was done at the University of Minnesota. 400 students were surveyed. Here are the results that will reflect the mindset of those doing the study. The students have been asked questions about creation and evolution, and the results indicated that those students who accepted the billions of years time frame for the earth more readily accepted concepts such as human evolution. If we can get them to believe billions of years, we can get them to believe evolution. If we can get them to believe evolution, we can get them to deny creation. High school and college students who understand the geological age of the earth, four and a half billion years is what they claimed at that time, are much more likely to understand and accept human evolution. That's the researcher Sahoya Kotner, who also said the role of the earth's age is a key variable that we can use to improve education about evolution, which is important because it is the unifying principle of biology by the way, this adoption and acceptance of the idea of billions of years affects zero research whatsoever. But they've called it a unifying principle of biology. Why? Because if an irrelevant, unproven doctrine can be instilled as science, then people are usually too lily-livered to reject it. And that's the case of our society today. I want to read you one more quote. When an opponent declares, I will not come over to your side, I calmly say, your child belongs to us already. What are you? You will pass on. Your descendants, however, now stand in the new camp. In a short time, they will know nothing else but this new community. That was Adolf Hitler in the rise and fall of the Third Reich. They don't care about you. By the way, Hitler fully embraced Ernst Haeckel's idea of everything's getting progressively better despite entropy. Hitler based his utopian idea on evolutionary theory and thought. His Aryan race hinged on that concept. I'm not worried about you going after your children. The older we get, the harder it can be for us to learn until we realize what's at stake. It's not just about fortifying your faith. It's not just about you being convinced. It's not just about you knowing enough for you to be comfortable. Your children and your grandchildren are going to come to you asking about these dinosaurs that are billions of years old. They're going to come to you asking about this evolutionary time frame, this evolutionary model, and they're going to have questions about how that can possibly correlate with Scripture. 
And if all you have to say in response is, well, the Bible says, instead of giving a book, chapter, and verse, and being prepared at least to point them in the direction of where they can find answers from a biblical source, then they're going to get their answers from an ungodly, hell-bound source. And guess what direction they'll be headed? You tell me, does it matter? Brethren, I realize it can be easy to fall asleep when you hear some bald-headed, chubby-bellied redneck talking about science the way you've had to listen for the last three nights. But I hope you will understand the absolute imperative nature of these ideas because those young folks running around out there in all of their innocence are going to be facing a world that tries to force-feed them the very doctrines that would strip them of their souls. And if you're not ready to start with an answer and to point them in the right direction, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Can we claim to be doing that when we discount what is quite possibly the greatest threat to their souls? So again, I ask you, does it matter? Does it matter if we forfeit faith's foundation? Does it matter if we uh, confuse God's communication? Does it matter if we shun Christ's salvation, claiming He never lived? And does it matter if we give up tomorrow's generation? Brethren, I want to thank you for allowing me to be here with you, to be a part of your vacation Bible school. It has been a thrill to get to speak with you, to talk with you, uh, and visit. And we certainly pray that God continues to bless this congregation and all the good work that's going out from here. Um, I thank you again for your time.